Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to be with you. It's so good to see you. Yesterday was Parents Weekend for our oldest daughter, Danica, in her first year in college. I went to my first SEC football game yesterday. I want to be clear, I will never complain about the parking problems that we have at Peachtree ever again. I hope you are enjoying this launch into fall and are excited to share part of the story of what God's doing in and through our journey here at Peachtree. We're in the midst of a year-long what we refer to as a quest. And Quest is us exploring the whole story of God together. And so we've been looking each month at a different kind of part of the story of God as we are working our way through it. And we are now, as we're into the month of September, we're looking at the Messiahship of Jesus. We started in the fall in August by looking at the ministry of Jesus. And now Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem And we get to experience what God is doing as he makes his way over to the cross. And as we do this in the Gospel of Mark, primarily we've been looking at how Jesus is an authority figure. That one of the threads that runs through the Gospel of Mark is this question of who is in control? What's at the center of the universe? And we see throughout the story of Mark that Jesus has authority over sin and forgiveness, authority over creation and nature, authority over evil and the dark spiritual forces that plague this world. And today, as we get into chapter 11, we're going to see that Jesus has authority over this building, over the temple. Here's a reconstruction and a model in Jerusalem at the Israeli Museum of what the temple would have looked like during the time of Jesus. And this is the famous story of Jesus entering into those courts to flip over the tables in anger, in disgust. This is a disconcerting story with our images of Jesus because we think of Jesus being meek and mild And yet what we're about to discover is that Jesus is anything but that. And so I just want to tell you at the outset, even before you hear this story, there's a couple of mistakes that we can make in reading it. Here's just a couple of mistakes. You can see this kind of as, so Jesus walked into church one day. The temple wasn't just any ordinary building. Another mistake that you might make is is that you're thinking that, that this is Jesus in his full humanity, that he's just in a bad mood one day. Or you might have the mistake that Jesus doesn't like finance. No, these are mistakes that if you don't understand what's actually happening here, what Jesus is actually doing in this story, that there is something far deeper, far more subversive, far more important and far more spiritual than we could possibly imagine. So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles, go ahead and reach for them to Mark chapter 11. In this second half of the book of Mark, we see this shift of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And the passage that's right before the passage that we're about to read is that famous Palm Sunday account of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. So this is Mark chapter 11, starting our reading in the 12th verse. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry and seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. 
And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city, and in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. And therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. May God bless not only the hearing and the receiving, but the incorporating, the internalizing, and the putting into practice his holy word for each of us as an individual, as well as all of us as a community. And so Jesus enters into Jerusalem in this part of his history. And he comes in as a king, but he's no ordinary king because he doesn't come in on a war horse, the military victor that they are expecting, but he rides in on a what? On a donkey, the symbol, the, the symbol of, of burden, of, of work, and of service. And so, yes, Jesus is coming in, and yes, they are singing their hosannas. They're crying out in prayer, God save us, God save us, God save us. And yet, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he is mixing the metaphor that he's a king, but he's no ordinary king. He will come as a servant. But it's not only the mixed metaphors of Palm Sunday of what Jesus is doing. In the portion that we read today, there are two primary images, and these are images for us that we read as distinct. That is the image of a temple and of that of a tree, a particular kind of tree, a fig tree. And we're going to talk about each one of these, but what you need to know even at the beginning here is that these images were not so distinct for God's people that, that they were one and the same. Let me see if I can start to explain that. When you go all the way back to the beginning of our story and you look at creation, creation in Eden was created as a garden, and at the middle of that garden was that of a tree. And the language that we have of Genesis in this imagery of this tree being in the middle of the garden is that it was built not just as a garden, but as a sanctuary. It is a place where God's presence dwelled. It is a place where the glory of God continued to shine in every way. There was no death, no destruction, no chaos, only order and goodness and beauty and light and truth. And yet what happens in this garden is that people rebel against God. 
and they have to flee from the garden and they find themselves eventually receiving the promise of God that he will not abandon them, but in the midst of that, they will find themselves in 400 years of slavery. And God renews that promise and he tells them that even in the midst of the wilderness, that he will be with them, that he will abide with them, that he will remain with them, that he will tabernacle or live with them. And this promise continues all the way through as we have seen in our quest journey and story as God dwelling with his people all the way to the point of David and Solomon and the temple and of the Ark of the Covenant and God's presence uniquely being a part of the community. And so all seems to be well until God's people disobey, engage in idolatry and terrible practices, and the people find themselves in exile. The reason I go on this little journey of creation all the way through the different parts of the Old Testament is for you to understand if you are reading this story and you're seeing it as Jesus enters into the temple, as eh, Jesus goes to church one day. No, no, no. The temple was the place where God's presence was said to interact, that heaven and earth were interweaving and overlapping with one another here on earth. And so in this place that was supposed to be the manifestation of God's presence, this is the place where Jesus enters into. And yet what he finds when he gets there is that the very place that's supposed to be the stamp of representing and embodying God's presence on earth is not what it's supposed to be. The other thing that we have a struggle with as contemporary Westerners or Americans in hearing this story is when we hear church, we have this notion of the separation of church and state that we think, yeah, 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 that's their religious life, but that doesn't have anything to do with the rest of their life. There is no separation of church and state. I love how John Ortberg puts it at this point in the story. Jerusalem dominated all of Israel, not just religiously, but also politically, culturally, economically for one reason, and that was the temple. The temple was like the White House, Wall Street, the National Cathedral, and the Bank of America all rolled into one institution. Of course, we would say SunTrust instead of Bank of America, but you get the point. I think they call it truest today, do they not? All of that is to say is that Jesus goes into the heart of the community, the place where God's presence is supposed to be, and it's not what he finds. What are the different problems that he sees? Three little problems that he sees in it. The first thing he sees is empty activity. He says, my house shall be a house of what? Of prayer. And when he goes into the temple, what he doesn't see is prayer. He sees a lot of motion, a lot of activity. I know that this is hard for you to imagine, but imagine that there's a religious institution out there where there can be a whole lot of activity, but not a lot of praying. This can happen. It happened for me, your pastor. I remember when I was in the early stages of my doctoral program and I was taking more and more classes and there was a cumulative effect over time in that first decade of ministry that after a while, it wasn't like I decided this somewhere along the way, I became a church professional. And I started becoming more and more of an expert and I started leaning less and less on prayer. And someone gave me a tiny little book by a man by the name of E.M. Bounds called The Power of Prayer. And it absolutely revolutionized my life. 
Here's part of what it said. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but persons whom the Holy Spirit can use, persons of prayer, persons mighty in prayer. The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but through persons. He does not come on machinery, but on persons. He does not anoint plans, but what? Persons, persons of prayer. God's revelation does not need the light of human genius, the polish and strength of human culture, the brilliancy of human thought, the force of human brains to adorn or enforce it, but it does demand the simplicity, the docility, the humility, and the faith of a child's heart. And if you are not careful as an individual, as a leader, as a church, you can start to believe your own newsreel. And we can start to believe in Peachtree's competence and our 100 plus years of success. And after a while, we could have a whole lot of activity here at the church and not a lot of substantive prayer. Jesus entered into the temple and he saw transaction after transaction and after transaction. But what he didn't see was the transformation of hearts that were tuned towards the grace of God. And then Ian Bounds says this, and I want you to say it with me out loud because this is relevant for our moment right there. Preaching never edifies a prayerless soul. That lets me off the hooks this morning, my friends. That no matter how faithfully I work on my sermon, no matter how much effort I put into it, how creative the illustrations could be, how articulate I might be able to be in that moment or impassioned or inspired or all of those things, it will only go so far if it reaches a prayerless heart. We all bear a responsibility for what we here do in our spiritual lives. And one of the things that's happened in many contemporary churches and has happened in my own life is from the inside out, if we are not careful, a hallowed, beautiful, magnificent, faithful place like this can just become a place of empty activity. That was problem number one Jesus saw. But the second problem that Jesus saw was that of exclusion. Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer for what? For all nations. This was not just the words of Jesus. Jesus was re-emphasizing and quoting the prophet Isaiah. That the promise of what was given to Abraham in the beginning that his blessing would be a blessing not just for his family, not just for his tribe, not just for his nation, but for the whole world that that promise was to extend and that the temple was supposed to be the representation of that. And yet, as Jesus comes into the temple, he sees division, he sees categories. The men can be over here and the women can be over here. The Jews can be over here and the Gentiles can be over here. If you can buy this kind of sacrifice, you can go here, but if you can afford that kind of sacrifice, you can go there. In fact, one of the great archaeological discoveries and treasures over the last couple of hundred years have been tablets like these. This is one that was discovered in the 19th century. And here's another one with the same inscription that was discovered in the 20th century. One of them was inscribed in Latin. The other one was inscribed in Greek. And since your Latin and Greek might be a little rusty, let me read a translation for you. No stranger is to enter within the enclosure around the temple. 
Stranger is another word for foreigner there. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. This is long before they had diversity, equity, and inclusion committees. If you enter here and you're not supposed to be here, you will die. Here was the temple that was supposed to represent the beauty of God being Lord of all. And it become a place of division and exclusion. And so the first problem that Jesus encountered when he saw the temple was the empty activity. The second problem that he encountered was that of exclusion. And the third thing that Jesus saw when he got to that temple was exploitation. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it what? A den of robbers. Just as Jesus didn't pull that first quote from Isaiah out of nowhere, but rooted it deep in the prophetic tradition, the second quote comes from the prophet Jeremiah. Part of the reason that we're doing this quest journey and asking you to do the hard sledding of being able to read the Old Testament is that Jesus is not nearly as random as you think that he is. That he's pulling together the great prophets of Isaiah and that of Jeremiah. And this phrase, a den of robbers, is one that Jeremiah based much of his ministry on. Hear and see the words of Jeremiah in chapter 7. Do not trust, the prophet Jeremiah says, in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, If you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place. Has this house, which bears my name, become what? A den of robbers to you. Do you see how Jesus is saying more than just your overcharging interest? Do you see why he is flipping over the tables in anger? And do you see why that as Jesus does this at the center of their spiritual, religious, economic, political life that they want to kill him? Jesus enters into the sanctuary and has the audacity to call it into question. And so the image of Jesus coming into the temple is surrounded by another image which is even more confusing but takes less time to explain, and it is the image of a tree. But it is not just any tree. It is a sycamore fig tree. One of the greatest learnings that I saw in the fruit that you see here is the first time I went to the Holy Land. You remember the phrase, a land flowing with milk and what? And honey. Do you remember that phrase? That's not the honey of bees. That is the honey of this fruit, the honey of figs. And eventually, it becomes the national symbol of God's people. Now, do you feel a little sorry for the fig tree, though? 
Jesus is walking along. He's a little hungry. It's not even the season for figs. And he's hungry and he wants. Well, what you don't know because we don't have a lot of experience with these type of trees. By the way, as an aside, sycamore fig tree was the very tree that um, Zacchaeus climbed and hid behind in the leaves. And it's the very tree that it says in the Talmud that the rabbis talk about those are the leaves that they use to form the clothes to hide Adam and Eve. Do you think this tree was important to God's people? During that season, even when there's not fruit, there are these little nodules. And so when the tree is green, but it's out of season, there are these little nodules that you can eat. And what happens is, if you go to a sycamore fig tree, and it's green, and it's out of season, and there aren't the nodules, the imagery is the tree looks fine on the outside, but on the inside, it's already dead. Jesus is not just in a bad mood. He comes to the national symbol of God's people, and he looks at it, and he can't find it, and what he declares is its fruitlessness. Do you think this can happen to us today? One of the greatest humanitarian crises of the 21st century is that of what I'm going to show you on the screen here. These are part of the millions of people that were displaced in Sudan with that of a campaign that became known as Saving Darfur. And there was a huge kind of change in the world with this first major struggle in the 21st century with a genocide, a program like this, is because this was the first thing that had happened where we had a little thing called social media. And so the world garnered a whole lot of attention around something that was happening in a remote location. And part of the reason that there was attention on it was because of all the people that would go to things like Save Darfur, and they would click like, 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 and then there was a sociologist who decided to investigate. I wonder if all of these likes actually produce any fruit, if they do anything. And so he started the process of examining how many people who liked saving Darfur versus how many of them actually did anything about it by giving even a penny to the effort. Here's what he discovered, that only 0.02% of people who said, save Darfur on social media, actually gave anything at all. Two out of every 10,000 people. And this is what he wrote. You got to look great without having to pay. It's the equivalent of eating junk food. It's engineered to make us like it, but it's ultimately empty. And this can happen to us as individuals, as a community, as a church, as a nation, 
that we can be emptied of our divine vocation, that God has placed his image within us and that we are called to be the temple. We're called to bear that kind of fruitfulness to the world. And yet we're prayerless, we're exclusive, and we don't care about the poor. And so Tim Keller puts it this way in the confrontation of this story. God forces our hand at every turn in the story. This man who throws open the gates of his kingdom to everyone and then warns the most devout of insiders that their standing in the kingdom is in jeopardy without fruitfulness is forever closing down our options. Here's this man who can be weakened by a touch and a crowd on his way to bring a little girl back from the dead is a man you dare not tear your eyes away from. Either you will have to kill him or you'll have to crown him. The one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. What happens when Jesus walks into Jerusalem as a king but no ordinary king, a king who has come to be a servant? What Jesus does when he comes in and he declares the temple to be empty and devoid and for the tree of the nation of Israel to be fruitless? is he is pointing us directly to his messiahship and the response that is only natural for them back then as well as us today. Do not think you or and I are in any better position. We must make the choice. Crown him as king or crucify him with the crowds. What is your choice? It's the 21st anniversary of the tragedy of September 11th. And you know what a special place this congregation has in my heart for the fact that you were the sanctuary for my wife when her plane was diverted to Atlanta when we thought we didn't know where she was that morning and whether or not her plane was one of the ones that had gone into the towers from Newark Airport. And as I was, in, I was in my New York City congregation, she was here singing and praying with you and living with Vic and Becky Pence. There was a song, there was a prayer, there was an anthem for my congregation up in the New York City metro area that was the prayer that sustained us through those difficult days. It was the prayer to ask God to abide with us. You see, behind all of the temple and all of the tabernacle and all of the garden and the tree imagery is a simple prayer that God has come to dwell with us. And his invitation in Jesus Christ is for him to not just abide in buildings or religious institutions or political hallways, but for us to become that temple individually and as a community. And so instead of me closing us in a a spoken prayer, I'm gonna ask you to first hear this prayer of abide with me and then to join us as we lift up our voices to have us become the new fruit and the new temple of what God can do in our moment in time. Abide with me.
Abide in me as I abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, but it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. If you do not abide in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned, but if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my students. As the Father has loved me, so have I also loved you. Now abide in my love. Jesus is still looking for the temple and for a people who will bear fruit. Abide with him. Abide with him. May it be so.